It's a full-time job. It's, well, it's more than a full-time job because it is 24-7. You don't go home at the end of the day and relax. Um, I suppose our job as a charity is to put carers back on the map in every way that we possibly can. Hello, I'm Caroline and welcome to the Every Small Step podcast. Each day this week, we'll bring you some interesting and inspirational stories from Dementia Carers Count. We'll hear about the challenges of caring for someone with dementia, the tough parts of the experience and some of the lighter points too. In today's episode, we hear from Jill and Tony. Tony is a Dementia Carers Count trustee. Jill is a member of the Carers Advisory Panel. They work to help design the courses offered and make sure that the voice of the carer is central to the work of the charity. Jill is currently caring for her husband, Paul, who has behavioural frontotemporal dementia, and she shares her story of getting her husband diagnosed. While Tony was a GP in North London, with a special interest in older people and mental health. Over to Jill and Tony. Hi Tony, I'm Jill. Nice to meet you. Hi Jill, I'm Tony. Nice to meet you too. I worked as a GP for very nearly 30 years, um, mostly in the same place in uh, Wilston Green in northwest London. On top of that, um, my clinical interests, I developed in older people and mental health. And so um, that was my clinical interest. And um, so I was recruited because of that, I think, by Dementia Carers Council. So I thought as a GP, I'm in a really good position to help a lot of carers and that again all kind of fed into my to my interest. I've been with my husband for about 38 years. For 30 years I worked as a a museum archaeological conservator, uh, 25 years in one of London's museums and then I went freelance after that two years ago. I had to give it all up to care for Paul full-time and look after my husband so I changed in a way I changed professions to become a full-time 24-7 carer. Uh, I think I became a full-time carer because I hadn't really very little options because it would have been too costly for me to the kind of work I did it would mean I was going to work all day just to earn enough money to pay for somebody else to take care of my husband and then I'd have to come home at very late at night, often from being uh, on a contract somewhere outside of London, only to have to look after him in the evenings and for the night and everything else. So it was just, it wasn't an option, really. Well, I've had 30 years of doing what I care very passionately about, which was my career. And um, and my husband had had about that length of time, a bit more in his career. And this was just, this was a complete change. I don't regret um, giving it up. I refuse to say I retired because I haven't. Um, and, um, yeah, and it's and I have to look at, I have to be as positive as I can and say, well, this is a complete career move in a way. And I became a GP with a special interest. And 
learned an awful lot. And the dementia work, again, crept up on me. I, um, I, I just took more and more of an interest. And during that time, I realised that carers also needed special attention and thinking about proactively. And at the time, there was very little focus on carers. Unfortunately, there's a lot more now. Um, and I realised that carers could leave themselves out of the equation easily enough, um, and certainly by healthcare professionals. And of course, I was at the advantage of having carers as my patients often, as well as uh, the people that they were caring for. And that included uh, couples uh, where one was the carer of the other, or they both considered themselves carers for each other, but it also included intergenerational caring as well. So I thought as a GP, I'm in a really good position to help a lot of carers. And that, again, all kind of fed into my, to my interest. It's a full-time job. It's, well, it's more than a full-time job because it is 24-7. You don't go home at the end of the day and relax. At the moment, Paul's very uh, able, physically able. He's, he's very active. Um, the, the kind of care that he gets now is more for, in a supervisory role. I, I supervise most things he does. Everyone says, oh, you've got to find time for yourself, which is obviously what we all try and achieve now, is the fact that you may not have the resources or, or, or people around to allow you to, to look after yourself in that respect. Um, I saw people who were, just like we've heard actually, spent 24-7 caring for people or caring for people and juggling jobs and um, other family and all the rest of it, ignoring their own health issues and health concerns. And I mean, was it physical health, mental health, being able to take breaks without feeling too guilty, all a myriad of small things that would add up. And that's what I meant by taking themselves out of the equation. And you can't care for somebody properly if you are not well placed yourself to do that caring. And in a difficult job, um, in any difficult job, things like burnout can creep up on you. And that's just one example. But people ignoring their physical symptoms, um, uh, people... Um, not thinking about how they're going to get some rest and relaxation, um, all those sorts of things. And I have a confession to make. I wasn't meaning to medicalise it, but I ended up pointing to a patient, a carer patient one day, and I said, you've got a classic case of carer's syndrome. They said, oh, I hadn't heard of that one. And I had to confess that I hadn't until 10 seconds earlier. Now, it's important not to take that too seriously. I don't want to medicalise it, but I was naming something. Um, and I felt that the best way to do it was to, in the context of the, of, the cons of the consulting room, being at the doctors, to call it something medical or medical sounding. Any carer will tell you that they find it very difficult to find time for themselves. The carer matters to uh, matters hugely, in fact, uh, to two people. 
um, assuming it's just two in the equation, um, the carer themselves, of course, as well as the person they're caring for. I mean, just take, for example, at the moment, you know, with the coronavirus, medical practices have not been open. It's maybe just be consultations by phone. Well, that's often you're looking out for trying to keep the person you care for fit and healthy. Um, If you need to do that for yourself, you may not have the opportunity to be able to take that time out. I mean, you know, a case where I spent months waiting for a dental appointment and then because it was quite a serious thing, I have had to have five appointments. We're trying to find people in this situation to take look look after Paul while I take five appointments at the dentist for reroute canal treatment is not an easy task. I mean, I'm very fortunate that my one of my sons lives fairly nearby. I did have arrangements before um, COVID-19 where there were people who could come and I you know, paid somebody who would actually take my husband for a walk or whatever. Then, of course, all that volunteers also helped out from a local charity. They were volunteers to take him out. So in that time, I would book to go to see my physiotherapist, all those sort of issues. I managed to work it around those points. It wasn't necessarily going for cups of coffee or me time it was just to maintain you know some kind of health situation there is all sorts of different ways to think about supporting carers Uh, i don't mean to be flippant but you've just got to have it there at the back of your mind all the time Um, otherwise it's terribly easy just to concentrate on the person it's okay to stick up for yourself it's okay to shout about yourself it's okay say this isn't working um, um i'm i'm not getting the help i need whatever it is absolutely i mean you know when you get the diagnosis if if you're lucky to get a diagnosis i i mean i was advocating for paul to get the diagnosis it was so for over a year was misdiagnosed and and i kept banging on and on and on about this was not correct he doesn't have depression blah 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 uh and i had to really stand up and advocate for him and and that is very tiring in itself there are all sorts of implications and you know gps are very pushed they haven't got much time so you do have to to look you know look for your own uh, ways of finding out and how you can get i mean i you know i did some a few underhand things to get a just to make sure the psychiatrist explained to me, I had pretended all ignorance that I didn't understand what this letter meant that I'd been sent. And could somebody explain it to me, which actually brought a physical person down from the clinic to actually explain to this lady in reception what the letter meant. And I pounced on them. <laughs> and uh, as a result, we did get an MRI scan and Paul was sent to a, a memory clinic. And sure enough, They've, the, the, once a neurologist had seen his his um, case and notes, then he got a proper diagnosis. Uh, all the time he was under psychiatrists and GPs, it was just midlife crisis and uh, depression or stress or you know anxiety, all those sort of things. I think advocating is really important, and I learned that. People often had to learn to advocate for the not only for the person they were caring for, but for themselves. Part of my job, I think, was to encourage people to advocate for them and even perhaps sometimes to teach them. 
you know, I'm very much aware that it's you have to fight your own corner and the people who don't know how to advocate for themselves are the people who who lose out. But even, that said, it's still so devastating. And I would say that even with a diagnosis, a letter presumably from the hospital was sent to my GP. We didn't ever hear anything ever again about it and until I used to go later on. It was only, again, knowing the system, demanding a second opinion even though I didn't disagree with the first opinion but I knew that the only way that my husband was going to be seen by anybody who knew anything about the rare dementia that he had has was to request a, a second opinion from the uh, Queen's Square from the neurological neuro hospital at Queen's Square and that's once you get into their clinic you have much more access to support and that's what we did. Just hearing Jill now, I mean, I've heard stories like that before any number of times, but it still comes as a shock, um, thinking about the system. Um, Jill, you mentioned how difficult it was to get access to services and get people to listen and take you seriously and make the right diagnosis and so on. And the system counts against patients and carers so often and I have to say, I recognise it all. And I recognise the, the ploys that people, the, the games that people play to get heard or to get a service or something like that. And it used to irritate me now. I just admire them. I just admire people who play the system for the right reason, um, because they need something that otherwise they would not get. So you walk away from that experience, well, it's a complete bombshell for a kickoff. Never heard of behavioural variant frontal temporal dementia. Um, then I realised it was originally was used to be called something called Pick's disease, and I had heard of that. So of course you go back and you Google it, and then your heart sinks because you look up what the implications of all this condition is, and you just think you're going to get it all. And it was probably only when I, by chance, um, from a friend suggested I got on a course at Dementia Care Account that I actually learned really an awful lot more about how to survive uh, a diagnosis in the first place and understand anything about dementia. I mean, something I learned on the, when I did the course, something I learned, I actually was only yesterday, I was on a, a Zoom call with my a group of FTD uh, people, who's a carers for people with FTD, and I, I have the two groups that I'm, I'm part of. And I was explaining to something that I was taught on the DCC course. I've learned so much. I'm now able to not to be so proud, I suppose, um, or even arrogant, and recognise there's just so much I don't know. Um, and so much I've got to be careful to pick up and learn. And that's why our Carers Advisory Panel is so, so important for the charity. The charity is getting our perspective on things and, and it's a bit, you know, 
from the coalface, people are we're, we're able to say what's pressing at the moment. And when we're on the panel, various people bring their all, all their different experiences to the panel. Some people have got uh, political advocacy and lobbying experience. Others have got more caring experience and, um, and some practical ideas. And I mean, one of the, my most recent experiences with the panel was through the groups that I've been involved with for rare dementia support an awful lot of people are uh, caring for people who've got double incontinence and in the old world I'm sure they could have just rung up the GP or the social services and somebody would have come out to them and helped them cope with the fact that they're having to deal with such a horrendous and daunting uh, situation and of course, there was no one to come because, you know, COVID-19 took over. And when you have people saying, I'm clear, I'm showering my husband three times a day, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's deliberately messing it all the time. Or they believe that he was deliberately messing himself and trying to cope with it. And he wasn't cooperating. What could she do? She was up to her. She was just at her wit's end. And so as a result, I said, I'll talk to, um, when I'm on the meeting, I have to have a meeting that say, I'll see what, if anything's, you know, if we know of anything that can be done. And within, I suppose, within weeks, uh, DCC had put on the virtual website, some just, you know, they managed to get some tips from an occupational therapist to put out there to say to people, if you are in this situation, these are some. This is some advice we can give you, and possibly not necessarily all the right advice that not all the advice that they may need, but at least lead them to the the right sort of people to contact. And you know, and for that, she's been able to now get some help and support. It's not necessarily all she needs, but at least she's getting some support now. Whereas you know, two months ago, she was just coping every day on her own something which very few people have to ever do. you know unless you've had children you wouldn't deal with it at all not necessarily one of the messages we give out is the value of carers how much carers do not only for the, the people they're caring for and their families um, but also for the economy 11 billion pounds worth of uh, family care every year um, I suppose our job as a charity is to put carers back on the map in every way that we possibly can. If you're already walking as part of every small step, thank you for your efforts please do share your fundraising page if you can. If you've not signed up yet, you can join us through the Dementia Carers Count website. You can find out more about the support available at dementiacarers.org.uk.